And I think that's an intergenerational thing. I think there's this assumption that digital is a space that's for, you know, younger audiences. But I mean, anybody who's got like a grandmother or or a great grandmother knows that they treat Facebook like their newspaper, like they're on Facebook more than us. Okay. I'll get to your other point about how do you minister during this uh, racially tense time? But I would, I would just say, well, when has it ever not been tense? Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, and I will be your lead host for this episode. I'm Abigail, a co-host and co-producer. Today, you'll hear the story of a clergy couple, Gabby and Andrew Wilkes, out of a new church plant in Brooklyn, New York. You'll hear from Dr. Elsie McKee, a church historian, who will help us wrestle with the question, what is worship? And you'll hear from Daniel Heath, who recently graduated from seminary and who is entering a new season of ministry in a pandemic. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, the producer. Sushama, we're beginning today by talking about pastors Gabby and Andrew, who are a young clergy couple doing a church plant in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm wondering if you could just begin by talking to us about why you felt their story was so important to tell. Pastor Gabby and Pastor Andrew um, know that social justice is a cornerstone of of the mission of their church. It it has to be. And I think one thing to note is that... um, for many, many Black churches, that that has to be a given that we are working um, for justice in our churches. And I know that Pastor Gabby and Pastor Andrew would never have, have misunderstood that or not done that. So that so they have done a couple of things. They have um, talked and worked on a mission of social justice that is is about race. Um, the pandemic of racism in this country um, that is is centuries old, but that we have seen um, be reconsidered and really kind of doubled down on um, during uh, the last couple of months, that it's gotten worse. I, I would go so far as to say in these last several years um, since the 2016 election. Um, so there's that. There's the pandemic of race and then, of course, the pandemic um, that is COVID-19. And I think that that is where um, the the mission of these two fine leaders, that is where they have centered themselves. Their leadership style is that they, they lead together. Um, they lead as co-pastors. They lead um, as a married couple. And I think that we see um, in their interview and, and just from also just knowing them that they lead with tremendous respect for each other. Um, and it's pretty obvious in, in their relationship and in the way that Double Love is, is led. So that, that's kind of another thing that I admired about them and about um, this experience of creating the Double Love experience. Let's meet our church planters and hear a bit about their context. My name is Pastor Gabby Kudjo Wilkes. And I'm Pastor Andrew Wilkes. And we are the pastors of the Double Love Experience Church in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew and Gabby, talk to us about Double Love. Talk to us about the mission of the Double Love Experience. And within that um, 
summary and synopsis, tell us about your congregation and the typical kind of people that you're currently serving. Double Love is um, it's kind of like our baby, right? We are, we are uh, in theory, just under two years old because we did a preview year from October 2018 to uh, October 2019. And then we launched our weekly services on November 3rd, uh, 2019. And we're able to do uh, weekly worship services right up until COVID required us to move from in-person to online uh, because of social distancing requirements. So um, Double Love is actually named after the Double Love Commandment in the Gospels. Uh, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first commandment and the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's really, um, it's our name because that's our mission. It's really what we endeavor to do. And we found that the double love commandment really was the best vehicle to explain to people from a scripture perspective, what we valued as a church and who we wanted to attract. And then community outreach and engagement is really core to who we are. Justice work is core to who we are. And so what better way to encapsulate that than loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So that was the driving scripture that really helped people to understand um, that we weren't just a justice church. We weren't just a black church. We weren't just a church plant, but we were a church that's really following the commandments of Jesus and really centering this commandment um, in the ways in which we show up and everything we do funnels through that double love commandment. We've really seen a number of folks coming to double love that are uh, millennials. We, we've seen folks from, uh, from different generations, um, you know, Gen Xers as, as as well, and so our aspiration is really to be uh, an intergenerational church, even though we know there are particular demographics um, in Brooklyn and in other boroughs of New York City that that tend to be drawn to a, um, a pastoral couple that is uh, committed to trying to share um, power, make decisions together in a way that's deeply informed by the Double Love Command. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just ask you about how how you see yourselves pioneering in this digital space and, and, and attach that to the mission, because we want to know a little bit, was it intentional that you were going to be live and in a digital space? Um, if so, had you planned out like a year out, you would go to digital and then COVID made you do it quicker? I'm just curious about the ways in which you're pioneering this space and if you even think that. Yeah, digital was always a necessary element of who we were. So much so to the point that when we were looking for spaces for our church to meet in Brooklyn, which, you know, finding space in New York is no small feat. It's hard to find an apartment in New York, let alone a place where you could have a church, okay? Um, and, you know, a lot of the places we were looking at, they were in such older spaces that, you know, Wi-Fi wasn't a given um, you know, camera options might not have existed. And we turned those spaces down. So from the beginning, before we even opened, we knew that we had to have um, a video option, a Wi-Fi option. And I think most of that is because we were coming out of a context where streaming was the norm. We, you know, we served in a mega church before doing this work. And um, it's just, it just did not, make sense for us 
to launch um, without having an opportunity to reach more than just the individuals who were able to physically come to our congregations. Um, we're also not necessarily um, the kind of church where people are so steeped in church culture that things have to be done a particular way. We've, we've kind of got the folks who were like, listen, I have a relationship with God and, you know, having a church would be nice. It's not be all end all for me, but it would be great if it works out. And that's been kind of an interesting shift for us to pastor in that way, because prior to this church plant, we've always served in really traditional spaces, spaces that have been um, predominant black church spaces that where folks really take church seriously. Um, so yeah, a lot of our engagement a lot of it was digital first. Um, we launched uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook before we even opened the doors of the church. Um, we did a lot of recruitment via our own personal networks that are not housed within the faith community. So I have a background um, in the music business. Uh, my husband has a background in politics and public policy. And so a lot of our relationships um, really do span different industries and different networks. And those were the people that were coming to the church. We were just gearing up for doing some physical uh, community mapping and door-to-door, -door, uh, not necessarily door-to-door, -door, but neighborhood-to-neighborhood -neighborhood, um, flyering and, and all of that. But we never got to that because the pandemic happened. And so it really, what we found was that the community engagement we were doing, we were just ramping it up. But the little bit that we were doing was really taking. Um, and so as a result, in this pandemic, um, we're really relying on many of the same digital muscles, but we're having to ramp up our person-to-person -person kind of a snail mail, uh, phone conversation um, connectivity to our congregation that we didn't have to do as much of in our uh, stages when we can meet in person. I, I think that, that that's right. And it, and it speaks to using those um, digital muscles to make sure folks are uh, filling out the, the census online, which we have uh, promoted through our, our social channels or something as lamentable and timely as making sure folks are participating in campaigns that the NAACP and other uh, civic groups are, are doing around Ahmaud Arbery's um, uh, shooting, um, as well as uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, and to your intergenerational question, uh, Sushama, uh, a part of what we've seen is that um, we have our most active uh, and largest following on Instagram, uh, but a lot of the research shows that Facebook really has the most intergenerational participation in terms of social media channels. And so we've really, uh, we've always had a Facebook presence, but we've been particularly uh, intentional about uh, building out our, our Facebook presence in terms of um, making sure our Bible studies and Sunday services are more accessible um, and promote it than um, we may have been doing before uh, COVID-19. Uh, and then also rolling out new things like um, we have uh, what we call a, a living room, which is a kind of virtual fellowship hour after our Sunday service that we hold via Zoom. Uh, and then we also do um, uh, prayer calls and um, office hours that we do on Saturdays, uh, also on Zoom, to make sure that folks have an opportunity for congregational care. Even though we can't be in person, we want to have that same kind of intimate contact. And, and in that way, we're, we're doing our best to try to reach across uh, generations. And I, and I want to really shout out just, just the Black church in general. I mean, as a result of us being online, we had so many uh, senior pastor colleagues who saw what we were up to 
and who told their networks about it and who said, hey, if you're in Brooklyn, you know, you should be at this church. And what that allowed for our brand to be was that we were not in competition with established churches that our community already loved and respected. We were simply offering something that was complementary to what the Black church experience had to offer, not in opposition to. And I think with the church plant, that's really important because you can show up as a church plant and make it seem like all these churches have gotten it wrong and we're the ones that are going to get it right. And, you know, my PR sensibilities, I was just like, I I don't want that to be our message. Like we're building on the foundation of who we are and we're adding to the rich legacy of, of the churches we respect, um, not the former. Um, so, yeah. So I think that our formation, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, love and justice it, are the themes that we built double love around. They're the themes that people know us by. Um, and thankfully, because we were able to brand it pretty clearly, um, people kind of get it from the beginning of who we are. And as a result, it funnel, has funneled into a lot of really amazing um, opportunities uh, to, to kind of bring people into who we are as a church. And, and interestingly, a part of the, the, the work I do now alongside Double Love is, is leading the uh, policy and advocacy uh, arm for uh, an organization called Generation Citizen, whose, whose mission is to make sure that young people are formed civically. Uh, and I say that because um, I think sometimes in, in church, we inadvertently subscribe to what um, some philosophers call adultism, which is the idea that, you know, young folks are to be seen, but not necessarily heard and to articulate mm -hmm. their perspectives in their own voice and to speak to their own lived experiences. And so um, from an organized perspective, from a theological and philosophical perspective, I've come to really appreciate, and I think Jesus, you know, models for us in the scriptures that, that young folks um, can lead the way if, uh, to some extent, we, we get out of the way or make space for them to, to live into their full uh, stature. The double love experience is forming young people civically. They have built their congregational identity around love and justice. This got us thinking about worship in a pandemic outside of the Sunday morning experience. What counts as worship? Elsie, if you just can start by just telling us um, your name, where you live, talk to us a little bit about your work at PTS and, and your academic specialties. My name is Elsie McKee. My area of specialization is the Reformation in the history of Christianity. And within that, I work particularly with John Calvin, with women's reformer, uh, Katharina Schutzel, uh, with exegetical history, how scripture has been interpreted through the ages, reception history, with ethical uh, implications of worship, worship and its ethical implications, and with cross-cultural things. Those don't really, the cross-cultural ones are not directly in the Reformation, because I also teach history of worship. Uh, and I was born and grew up in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So my own understanding of the world is shaped by having two birth cultures, two birth languages, and adding some more on top of that. So one of the things that particularly interests me is the embodied character of worship and of history. Uh, the people that we study in history are really and truly just other people like us. And understanding how they have worshipped and thought and argued and praised God is a really important insight into how the world we live in now uh, came to be. 
Yeah. And so with that in mind, if you could expand on that and tell us what what is your definition of worship then and how and, and speak more to how worship for Christians has been um, defined historically. That's a rather big question. So I think I will take it in pieces. Please do. Uh, I'll, start, I'll start by talking about how I define worship when I'm teaching history of worship. The under, basic understanding of worship is the attitude toward God, reverence, adoration, praise, uh, the inner heart relationship with God. That is not observable in external forms. So when I am talking about worship with my students, I define the visible forms uh, in four ways. One would be the gathered corporate worship of the people of God, the planned actions of a group of people uh, gathered together to worship, that you could call liturgy in a more narrow sense. Uh, then besides that, there would be planned acts of individual or personal or small group worship, uh, like family prayers or personal Bible reading or a variety of other kinds of planned acts of worship. Then there would be the most free-floating, which I would call the spontaneous worship. For example, in the spring, looking at the beautiful new flowers that God's creation has produced for us, one might simply say, wow, thank you, dear God. Mm. That's not a planned act of worship, but it is clearly an expression of praise uh, to God, another form of worship. Then a fourth one, would be what I would call diaconal worship, uh, picking up on the Pauline use of liturgia as a gift benevolence uh, for the people of God, the sharing, the service to others, so that within the broader scope of worship, there is not simply the vertical direction of the adoration of God, but there is also the horizontal uh, dimension in two forms, the corporate uh, group of people gathered together to worship God, and also the uh, practice of caring for neighbors as an expression of the love of God. So worshiping God is both directed to God uh, immediately, but also directed to God through the ministry to other people. So when I am talking about worship, I am including a wider range of possible expressions. When Dr. McKee talked about directing worship to God through ministry to others, through the practice of caring for neighbors, we were reminded of Gabby and Andrew's ministry and the double love commandment. But we still needed to know what a historian thinks about this historical moment. So my co-host, Abigail, asked her. Um, I'm curious to also kind of layer on top of this, Elsie, this experience that a lot of pastors ha are having right now, moving their worship services into a digital space. Do you think, um, or, or I guess, what do you think about digital experiences of worship and uh, whatever you have seen, whether the church that you attend has gone online, you know, what do you think about the ways that pastors are doing ministry digitally right now? First, I should preface it by saying that I am not particularly technologically oriented. <laughs> uh, 
On the other hand, I have been very grateful for the possibility of being able to gather, in quotation marks, uh, for worship with other people. Uh, the ways that this has been practiced online in virtual forms have varied, of course, and a lot of it would depend, again, on what one understands to be the main common activity of the people gathered in worship. Uh, for example, if your uh, focus is particularly on the priest carrying out the sacrament of the Mass, then it's going to be considerably harder to do that online. If your understanding of the common shared uh, corporate worship is that it is equipping the people of God with understanding the Word of God, uh, leading them in prayer, uh, leading them in praise, then you do still have a problem with the fact that they can't all join in singing or uh, voicing their praise in most contexts. I mean, if you can work out a Zoom context or a similar thing where lots of people can be gathered, then it does become possible, but that's beyond the abilities of at least a number of the online services that I have seen. Mm. In terms of the ways that I've seen it practiced, I would say that there are many strengths to the intent to bring people into a common experience of directing hearts and minds toward God and sharing that uh, with uh, other Christians. Because part of what worship includes, for at least a lot of the Judeo-Christian heritage, not all of it, is the corporate awareness of the people of God. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean Individual worship is not worship. It certainly is. But it. I think that would not can't be a complete expression of worship for uh, Jews or Christians, uh, because we are a people. We are not individual persons uh, in relationship to God. Seminary professors aren't the only ones talking about a corporate awareness or a common experience. We have to be careful of using the word worship to mean going to church um, because that's not what it means historically or theologically. So my name is Daniel Anthony Heath, recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I would love to mention been married for 12 years with two beautiful sons, 11 and 6. Yeah, so it's interesting that I feel that we have taken a term and commercialized it to to be defined um, for a specific purpose, and that's gathering in a building where you sing and you hear a sermon. Um, for me, worship is a way of life. What it, what does worship really mean? Um, and even church <laughs> in the Greek does not mean going to a building, mm. uh, hearing a sermon, and singing. Uh, in, in the Greek, it just simply means an assembly or a gathering. Um, so anytime you gather with, with folk, 
uh, it should be church if you're there because we are light bearers, images of God. And so if we redefine what or or <laughs> go back to original definitions of what church and worship are, then I think our imaginations will open up or what do we do when we gather? Yeah, Daniel, let's take that a step further. I'm thinking about you, you were just recently graduated. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. And I mean, it's just a triumph. So we're, we're so proud of you. So go, go reflecting on what you just said and moving forward to whatever your ministry looks like from, from here on. Um, with your redefining church, um, reimagining church, looking at the definition of church historically to today. Think about the the moment that we're in with COVID. I, I was on a call last night with um, 25 urban pastors, Black pastors in urban areas, mm-hmm. who it was basically a check-in for um, the Black Theology and Leadership Institute. Mm-hmm. And one of our, um, one of the pastors mentioned that he had buried four family members Mm. and officiated at their funerals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. So taking all that you just said about this and what we're, what we're looking ahead at, what you as a, as a young leader will be doing in the church, what does this look like for rites of passage? What does it look like for liturgy? What are you expecting as a, a, a new young, not new young church leader? Um, recently graduated. What do you feel like this looks like for you? And what are some of the challenges considering COVID? Yeah, that's, oh man. Um, First of all, prayers for all pastors and all family members who are dealing directly with the effects of COVID. I love what Jesus did in teaching us through parables because it was very accessible, very simple. There's no confusion. And I think in answering your question, uh, what does church look like for a kind of a, I would call myself a, a new ministry leader in this new context, is I would say, Daniel, um, let's meet needs, okay? Let's yeah. meet needs. Yeah. God, first of all, what do I need to do? Um, what are the opportunities to participate with God and God's work right now? That's my question to myself. But my 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 hope is that for my ministry and, and helping others to ask the question, where uh, where are needs and how can I serve? How can I meet needs? Of course, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, so kind of hashtag let's meet needs. That, that's what I would say. Um, that's at the heart of what I feel I'm called to do. We're all called to do. And I really want to I really want to answer that question and, and do that vocationally every day is meet needs, because that's what Jesus did. You know, mm. uh, Jesus had uh, we can we can outline his accolades and in terms of miracles and doing this and that and the third, but he continued to meet needs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't matter that yeah. he did this miracle over here in this chapter. If you turn over three chapters later, he was still doing what? Meeting needs. So for me, I want to focus on that uh, uh, simply. God is everywhere. And we, 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 we say that we believe that, uh, but we need to say it um, and we need to act like it. <laughs> and we, wherever we are, God is there. So it's not just in the building that's closed up now for you know for seventeen weeks, but God is everywhere. So um, we want to experience the sacred wherever we are. Absolutely, I love that. I love that too. I love so that good. too. 
Um, Daniel, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking about this this idea, in fact, that we we all on this call believe that God is everywhere. And we really need God to be everywhere right now. And this has been such a stressful uh, couple of weeks. Like we're at, like in trauma within trauma. It's like COVID and then within COVID, every low, awful, racial, everything is being unearthed again. Um, and unearthed again in a different way because it's kind of like it's never left. It's just being unearthed in, in a way that I, I know in my 40 some years of life have not seen be before in, in quite this way. How are you feeling? How are you getting the strength and courage to actually preach the message that you feel um, that you want to preach or minister the way you think you need to minister in this moment? Thank you. Or for personally, yeah, that. not to cut you off. Or personally, how you how you raise two black boys in this moment as a leader and as a father. I'll just add that, and I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's great. That's great. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about being a father. Um, very quickly. So I will tell you that I have been experiencing literal chest pains the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think because of what I'm carrying in my skin, being reminded of the danger it may pose to certain people, but also uh, even more importantly, um, the danger that my two boys may pose because of their skin. Mm -hmm. That has caused great anxiety, staying up late at night, and I've had to kind of keep it together because I don't want to overwhelm or um, add to their already anxious <laughs> living conditions. So um, being a father to them is uh, a joy. Uh, but during this time, at some times in my flesh, it feels like a burden. Because uh, I'm like, Lord, you know, I, for me, is I get to raise these boys. But then when I turn on the news, it's like, I know I have to raise these boys. And I, let me give you more specific Example, my oldest boy is uh, 11. And back in February, we did a lot of um, kind of black history education because they don't get enough in the schools. And we got to Emmett Till. And I will tell you that it was not just about black history education. It was prepping for him to leave the house every day. Mm. So we pray over our boys every day before they go to school. Um, and the prayer is not just some cute tradition. It is a cry and a plea to God that they will return home. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, that, and that's just real. I think that's something to name and, and the insight for people to, to, to know. Because um, for right now, people see my boys, oh, they're cute, you know. <laughs> but when does cute, um, you know, move over to being a threat? I guess mm -hmm. is is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. So that that that's been something to uh, to deal with, and I love my sons, and we're gonna faithfully raise them. I'll get to your other point about how do you minister during this uh, racially tense time, but I would I would just say, well, when has it ever not been tense? Um, mm. uh, the Amen. very question I want to ask folks um, definitely folks who don't look like me, but the church specifically is while May 25th was a turning point um, for the media. Uh, but I would ask, what were you doing on May 24th? Mm -hmm. 
you know, so we, we get all excited. We protest, we do the things, we check in on people, but I, but I want to, I want to press the power use the power of the pause and say, well, well, wait a minute, what were you doing on May 24th? And dare I say, what were you doing uh, May 25th in 2019? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that I want, you know, I think people should take, uh, or they have the opportunity to do an assessment mm-hmm. of their lives up to this point, not just reacting when something happens. I love the, the letter to Birmingham jail, Dr. King, and, and he used the image of the taillight and the headlight, and he critiques the church. He was he was he primarily uh, speaking to uh, his white co- colleagues, but we can expand that now, just uh, church uh, more general, is that, you know, are we just a reacting body, um, reactive um, uh, church? Or are we leading the way? Are we leading the charge? Are we, are we getting ahead of stuff? Um, so that's how I would challenge. You, you mentioned something very important. You say unearth the racism. If I can piggyback off of that analogy. Please. Uh, conflict is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, okay? As we know. The first conflict happens, as we know, in Genesis 4 with two brothers, Cain and Abel. And how does the story end? It ends in a murder. I love uh, President Barnes does a talk in one of his classes, and he says the worst conflicts are those <laughs> that are not resolved, but they are buried. All right. Hmm. The challenge is to find where and why Abel is buried in the situation. And you mentioned racism being unearthed or uh, mm-hmm. revealed, uncovered. And I think that analogy works well with what President Barnes speaks about, uh, conflict, uh, 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 finding where Abel is, why Abel was buried in the first place. Um, you move on to New Testament. I believe if you want to participate in the kingdom, you must walk through conflict, okay? And so in the preaching moment, we can't sugarcoat stuff, walk, walk around things, tiptoe. We have to name it. I go to Luke 4, I believe, uh, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue, reads from Isaiah, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. You know the scripture well. But I love the fact that if you go to the end of that passage, uh, it says that those people got angry and they took the messenger, they took Jesus to the edge of the town. They were going to throw him over a hill. They were going to kill him before, because of his message. But I love verse 30. It says this, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And what is that saying to me and what I think it suggests to all of us is that we have to we have to face, turn around, face the conflict and walk through it. Jesus is our example. I think Luke 4 is a powerful image of Jesus doing that. And I think it's a challenge and a call for us to do the same. Um, so I'll, 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 I don't want to get to preach. I feel my, my preacher voice. Right <laughs> in the we don't mind. We don't <laughs> mind. <laughs> preach. Ministry leaders are being asked to chart a course forward in the midst of a pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic has perhaps helped to unearth another pandemic that infects our country's social consciousness, our imaginations, our perception of the way that the world works. We're talking about systemic racism. What, where would protests, and, and again, we're, we're specifically talking about like this moment that we're in, if you want to kind of recognize the moment that we're in in the country but is protest worship would you consider protest part of a worship experience and if so how 
I personally would, because I would put that within the loose category of uh, serving God by uh, honoring the truth and serving my neighbor. Part of the question goes back to what is the, the inner worship? Is my attitude of reverence and adoration toward God my expression of relationship of worship that is is that being expressed in a protest my sense of what serving god demands of me or inspires in me to do and i personally would say yes that doesn't mean that protest is always worship again it has to be understood in the context of what is the attitude of the person to whom is this uh, at this work being offered mm. if it's being offered to god as a service to god's truth and justice to, to the justice that i owe my neighbor mm. then i see it as a form of worship but that's not to say that uh, everybody would, because some people would not uh, agree with my extending uh, the diaconal form of worship quite so broadly. In the New Testament understanding, it's more restrained. Paul's talking about the gifts that are given to support the saints, the uh, offerings, the collections. But I personally think that it uh, by extrapolation, is uh, an, at least an extension of what it means to uh, serve God in what I call diaconal worship. I'm seeing hundreds of of my colleagues post on social media of having church in the street, meaning protesting. And I, I, I like the, the fact that you use protests. We need to separate the word protest from rioting and looting. And I think that's... That, I want to at least say that or name that because some people educationally um, will conflate all three. So, so yes, protest absolutely is a form of gathering, which makes it a form of church. Remember church means a gathering or an assembly, right? Of, of folks mm-hmm. and what you're doing, what you're doing and what God's doing during that gathering is worship. <laughs> it's just, so protest needs to be, um, part of uh, the reimaginative um, opportunity for gatherings. What other needs have these pandemics unearthed for Christian leaders? And how do we respond with imaginative, generative, and justice-oriented leadership? We'll let the pastors from Double Love have the final word. Um, what has What I have enjoyed the most about this moment is for individuals who've not had to live the experience that folks on the margins live to have to re-examine the stories they tell about God. Because mm. anybody on the margins knows that God is with you, you know, whether you're up or where you're down, you know, on the, on the mountain or the valley. And I think that it has caused any thoughtful preacher to stop using trite, you know, colloquial sayings in the pulpit um, mm. that don't hi- that don't hold theological weight and resonance for folks who are literally dying 
um, and suffering under this condition. And, you know, we're in New York, the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And so people are literally dying. It's not metaphorical. Um, and so what do you, how do you, it pushes you to think differently theologically, but for folks on the margins, we've, our people have always been dying. Right. And, and that's the reason why um, even in COVID black and brown folks are disproportionately affected because we had so many pre-existing conditions, either by our health, um, socioeconomic conditions, hanging on by a thread to make ends meet, you know, and so it has exacerbated and exposed um, conditions that already existed for folks. Um, and then it's brought in people who were doing a little bit better um, to have to look at God from a, from a different lens um, when they're not the winners right now. Um, and so I, I, I think that this is a this is an opportune moment for the church to really call into question what have we been saying about God and is that consistent for the people in our pews who don't have the same lived experience as us and I, I'm hopeful that it'll bring us to a place where there's more sensitivity to um, the nuances of how God shows up in people's lives. Um, and as a womanist would say, sometimes God might give you survival skills in the midst of a wilderness, um, as opposed to pulling you out of the wilderness altogether. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, it, it goes back to this thread of, of formation, uh, which I, I think is important to always do. Um, and In Princeton, I remember being exposed to a stream of uh, evangelical theology that talks about open theism and and other contexts. It, it's called process theology, and and a part of some of the claims that um, both of those streams make is that God's power, God's direction, and God's foreknowledge may not be these kind of super forceful, everything is exhaustively known in advance kind of way, which could be troubling if one thinks that God, for instance, saw a global depression and COVID-19 coming. And, you know, if you foresaw this, Lord, how did we get into this mm-hmm. place? Why didn't you, you know, kind of steer us in a different route? Um, whereas I, I think the alternative that um, those traditions provide is what, what if God is not um, causing and driving these things that bruise families and wound creation? What What if God is um, weaving something beautiful, something loving through human beings, through creation, and calling us to assume in concert with God um, a measure of creative responsibility to be catalyst for love, to provide pastoral care, to preach a gospel that is um, big enough for lament as well as rejoicing. And so mm-hmm. having um, a more spacious view of how God works that brings vulnerability together with um, a idea of power that is not colonial, if I could be blunt about it, but rather um, graceful and generative. Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. 
You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary and Dr. Elsie McKee's scholarship at ptsem.edu. You can learn more about Pastor Gabby and Pastor Andrew's ministry at doubleloveexperience.org. And you can learn more about Daniel Heath's consulting work at church21.com.